It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Eleven Twenty Two King Road, Moscow, Idaho, marks the address of a student rental home near the University of Idaho. A house once filled with laughter and fun now sits empty and abandoned, stained with blood and memories of the horrific crimes that occurred within. This week, the FBI returned to that very house where students Kaylee Gonsalves, Zana Kernodal, Madison Mogan, and Ethan Chapin were brutally murdered. On Tuesday, October 31st, investigators arrive to collect evidence and information about the crime scene as the prosecution prepares for the trial of the accused Idaho killer, Brian Koberger. The trial was originally set to begin on October 2nd, but was delayed indefinitely after Koberger waived his right to a speedy trial. With the postponement, investigators are using the additional time to construct a physical model of the house that can be used during the trial. Joining me again on the Fox True Crime Podcast with the latest out of the case is my friend, attorney, and retired NYPD inspector, Paul Morrow. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Now, there have been two significant legal developments with this case. Tell us about it. So like any case, once you've made the arrest, this whole thing goes into prosecution land, right? And so what we're doing now is prior to a trial, the two sides are fighting over the evidence. The defense wants to keep a lot of evidence out to help their case. Prosecution wants to keep it in. That's the general dynamic in a prosecution. So we've gotten uh, over the last couple of weeks, as you say, a couple of big decisions. Let's deal with the one that I think has made the most noise, which is the decision relative to the genetic database, the genealogical DNA. Short version, the investigators found the DNA on the knife sheath at the scene. Touched DNA, it was a very, very minute amount, but it was enough to work with. Idaho State Police originally had the ticket on this DNA. Ultimately, they decided to give it to the FBI. That's gonna matter. The FBI then built out a profile from that. So what does that mean? We have to understand a little bit about genealogical DNA, and this is a growing field investigation. They take that DNA, they put it into the commercial databases that we've all seen on TV, 23andMe, Ancestry.com, etc. You'll get a hit there, obviously, if the main perp, the person whose DNA that comes back to, is in the database. But that's a shot in the dark. It's rare, very rare. What you're more likely to get is a relative, in some cases a, dist- a distant relative. So like, for instance, a second or third cousin. That DNA overlap can be as low as 3%, 1% percentages like that. What that means is you end up with a very big pool of potential relatives. So now that you have this big list of, let's say, 500 people that could be related to your perp, you have to do other things. What are those other things? You have to build out a family tree, and you have to look for the person through other atmospherics, other details, other data points that could be your guy. And that's what the FBI did. The FBI took the 3% or whatever it was that came back. I don't know the exact percentage that they got back. The court doesn't know either. But I heard some rumor, and just couch it as that, it's a rumor, that uh, who they hit is his father. I don't know that, but in any case, what they had to do then is look at all the people that seem to be related to this profile and say, 
which one of them seems to be connected to that area? Well, when they do that, you come back to the fact that there's a guy named Brian Koberger who has this DNA overlap, and he lives 10 minutes from the crime scene, and that enabled them to focus on him. So the key, though, is this. While that was going on, and the timeline's not entirely clear, even to the court, they're doing all the other things that we've seen on TV and heard about. They're looking at the car, which was a big, big break, that white Elantra, and, you know, hats off to that woman who was at the um, gas station who just decided to go very carefully through her video, and she's the one who gave them that big break. Hats off also to the two campus cops who have been unheralded heroes in this thing because using that data point, they looked at the University, University of Washington databases, and then they one, the other one drove around, and both of them the same night, independent of each other, found the car. When the cops took that car, and it took them a little bit, and they saw who it came back to, you end up with somebody, Brian Koberger, who fits the description that Dylan Mortensen gave, the survive, one of the surviving roommates, of who she saw in the building that night, right? About six foot, slim, athletic, but not muscular build, and the thing that everybody remembers, the bushy eyebrows. So they took that, the car, they got a search warrant on all of the uh, of Brian Koberger's electronics. At the same time, they're dumping the cell towers to see who was active in that area at any point. And then they start to get the phone stuff we've heard about. The fact that he was in and around that house something like a dozen times in the time leading up, in the weeks leading up. Uh, according to Mr. Gonsalves, at one point, he was so close to the house, he hit their Wi-Fi. And I'm sure they dumped the Wi-Fi as well. Why does all this matter? Because the, the judge's decision relative to the genealogical database came down just about a week ago now. Right in the decision, the judge says, I will entertain the defense's request to see the methodology that the FBI used and to see all that paperwork. We're going to look at it in camera, which just means in judges' chambers. I don't want it all over the media, just we're all going to look at it, meaning the lawyers and the judge. But what he also says in the decision is the following. Recognize that this genealogical information was not used for any of the search warrants that the prosecution obtained, that the, the task force obtained, or that was used to make the arrest. In other words, defense, I'll entertain this, but from where I sit, this is irrelevant. And that means to me, the defense is just realistically throwing sand in the gears. It's something of a delaying tactic but it doesn't really have any substance, and I don't think Brian Koberg has made up any ground. Oh, oh, and by the way, I meant Washington State University, not University of Washington. I'm talking about the one that's in uh, Pullman. That's mm -hmm. only about 10 miles away from the murder scene. Paul, can you explain for listeners, as the defense attorney said, quote, I have a huge issue with this, meaning the evidence. Was her issue then the fact that she didn't see or have insight into the methodology, into the FBI records, or its existence in general? And regardless what the answer is, for those of us who see this type of use of evidence, addition to the constellation, it's not what you hang your hat on, it's one of the many pieces, the, the subsequent question then is, why is she trying so hard to blow this open when this is usually an acceptable form of obtained evidence? So great question. The genealogical DNA investigatory vector here, for lack of a better term, is pretty new, and the case law on it is not very developed. In Idaho, the judge actually literally says this is a case of first impression. 
And what she's trying to do is build up, first of all, what she's one of the things she's trying to do is create a collateral issue, which is, in other words, when, when you're kind of in trouble in a case, find something else, even if it's not very relevant or pertinent, to try to potentially take a jury's mind off of what you're talking about. Have them focus on that and not the fact that the evidence against your client is very strong. So there's that tactic, and that's just a, a strategy that defense attorneys use. But the other thing is this, and I find, and this would be a little bit more substantive. She's trying to grab as much information as she can, and where she's trying to go is to develop the theory. And the judge, I feel, kind of just slammed that door closed, but let me go into it. She's trying to develop the following theory. You guys use genealogical data-based evidence against my client. You built your whole case out against my client using that. You weren't allowed to do a lot of that stuff. You violated my client's privacy rights by doing that. I want that evidence out. And what she's hoping is that if the, let's say, the court were to decide on appeal or Supreme Court of Idaho, if it ever got that far, that's said, you know what, defense, you're right, that goes. What she's going to try to say is that you guys based everything you did on that genealogical data-based evidence, and so Everything else is fruit of the poisonous tree. And so all the rest of your case goes, release my client. The problem for her is, as I said, this decision, the judge says, right, and it's not an accident. He knows what's going on. And the judge says, listen, I'll entertain this, but understand something. It's essentially irrelevant. He doesn't say it that way, but by saying right factually, he doesn't even say the the state alleges this. He literally says... The evidence that the state used for its search warrants and for its arrest warrant of Brian Koberger did not come from the genealogical evidence. And he's essentially saying there, I'll entertain this, spin your wheels, but it's not going to get you anywhere. And let's talk sort of brass tacks for a second, because this is either strategic or it's earnest and strategically as you just said, it could be a delaying tactic or it could be the arrow that blasts everything open, which is that defense will will point to this and say, look, either A, everything is poison or B, this is something that could plant a seed of doubt in a juror's mind who, again, if the threshold is beyond a reasonable doubt, the onus essentially is on the defense to poke little holes in the entire prosecution's theory so that the jurors are left so unsettled that it doesn't reach that threshold. Now, you sort of contrast that argument against perhaps the landscape of, well, is this a waste of time? Does this actually serve justice for so many people who look at this case and feel so strongly it's a slam dunk? Of course, innocent till proven guilty, but armchair style, everyone says, this is our guy. This is just wasting time. So can you speak to sort of the larger concept that do you agree with what defense is doing here? Is this diligence? Is this earnest? Or is this simply a waste of time? Oof. Tough question because I'm not sitting where they are. It may look like a waste of time to us, but there's a couple of things. First of all, in our system, which is an adversarial system, that is the two sides are, are opposed to each other. And that's not that we lose track of the fact that um, that's not always the case in other systems, but that's the way ours is set up. And as you just said, which is important, he's innocent until proven guilty. So it's the defense's job to do this kind of stuff. It's the judge's job to make sure it doesn't get too far off track. So she is, for lack of a better term, fishing around for something she can hang her hat on to, as you said, raise reasonable doubt in just one jury. You only need one. So if they get to trial 
and she can point at various pieces of evidence if the judge lets them in, she can try to make a case that all of this came from uh, the genealogical database and that it should all be thrown out. Now, that'll be the, the relevance of that evidence will be decided well before they get to uh, trial. But one of the things I think that she's sort of fishing for here is the timeline. The judge even says in this decision, the timeline of when the database evidence, the genealogical database evidence was developed is not clear to me. So he doesn't know either. All right. So that's important because let's say, for, and I don't think it went this way because this stuff, this, this uh, investigation of the genealogical database stuff takes a while. As I said, you got to build a family tree. You got to go through um, things like court records and, and birth records. You try to find these, the relevant person. But let's imagine it happened fast. They got this guy in about six weeks. Um, if I'm sitting where she is, what I do is I try to put all the other stuff that the prosecution did, the search warrants, um, the, the, uh, the car stuff, the, the database pings to DMV to see who the car comes back, all of that stuff, which happened, whatever it was, three to six weeks after the fact. Some of that timeline is not clear either. I try to put all of that stuff after the genealogical database results so that I can say they only did what they did because of the genealogical database. And again, fruit of the poisonous tree. Because it was the genealogical database that pointed them at him, the rest of the stuff has to go. But she's got two problems even in that scenario, which is number one, it's not at all clear that the FBI or the task force did anything wrong with the genealogical database. In fact, the judge seems to lean very strongly on what little case law that there is out there leans very strongly that the perp has no privacy interest in his stuff if he's not in the database. Remember, they're matching to people who voluntarily put themselves into the database and who happen to overlap with Brian Koberger, whether it's his father or somebody else. So Koberger doesn't have what they call standing. In other words, Koberger, you're not even in the database. We found your dad, and then we went online, looked at open source stuff. The way that the state looks at this, the way the prosecution and the task force looks at it, is it's a clue. This was a clue. This is not any privacy invasion. The other problem she has is that the FBI did it. And I said earlier that that matters, and here's why. She wants that stuff. The FBI is federal. I've had this in New York. It's a it's pretty solid case law. Okay, I had a terrorism case. We're doing it on the state level. They wanted everything the FBI had. Well, the rule is generally anything that's in the control of the prosecution. The stuff the FBI had was not in control of the, of the uh, New York City uh, Manhattan District Attorney's Office. And so the Manhattan DA said, go get it from the FBI. And the FBI said, we're not giving it to you because we weren't part of the case. And that's how it resolved. This judge seems to be leaning towards getting the FBI to, to, to give it up. The FBI doesn't want to give it up because they don't want their methodology out there. They don't want others bringing similar cases in the future. The FBI in general, law enforcement in general, doesn't want how they do what they do too, too public because the defense can poke holes in it. I think all of this is wind. I think they're going to look at it in camera. They'll get some stuff. 
She may try to appeal, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think she's going to get anywhere because ultimately it's irrelevant. The case law is with the task force and the prosecution. We got to remember that this was very heavily lawyered. The prosecution, I was making this point to you on prior podcasts, on Lawrence Jones show and some other things that having a prosecutor involved in a complex case like this, and this was complex, having the lawyers in early protects you against appeals and, 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 and losing evidence later on. It's so important. It's counterintuitive to investigators. They don't like having a lawyer in the room. It's why I went to law school when I was doing police work, because I wanted to know how to do that. They did it from everything I see. My understanding was that the FBI had their legal division involved as well. There were FBI lawyers looking at all this stuff. They were prepared. They're going to beat this. And as you said, innocent until proven guilty. But from where I sit, this evidence is going to hold up against Brian Coburg. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And interestingly, you know, again, right next door, just a few miles away, Washington State enjoyed its first guilty verdict for murder. It was a 31-year-old cold case on the basis of familial DNA. Now, that too wound its way through the appeal system. And in December of 2022, the Washington State Supreme Court reinstated that guilty verdict. So it's new for Idaho, but its next-door neighbor really just made great strides. And it's just interesting to know, as we look at that legal landscape, how just a few miles separates precedence, separates opportunities uh, for the lawyers to sort of use what they have. And we've talked about this often with this case. It also separates the fact that the death penalty here is not, the death penalty here is on the table. Mm. So let's talk about something else that separates Idaho from other states. And it dovetails in with that notion of a threshold of beyond a reasonable doubt. And here, how that standard applies in a place that normally it doesn't. Can you speak to the other case that arose this week out of the other decision that arose this week out of the Coburger case? Right. So this is the thing that I think has the potential to delay the case a little bit more. And, and, and this, to me, does look like a dilatory tactic on the uh, behalf of the defense. The Idaho state constitution has a little bit of an anomaly in it. It lists the standard of proof for an indictment as beyond a reasonable doubt. That's just black letter wrong. Okay, that's not the standard. That's the standard for a jury to convict, right? We have no real doubt this is the guy that did it. The standard for an indictment is the same as the standard for an arrest, which is probable cause. What does that mean? The guy probably did it. That's the the legal standard for a cop to put cuffs on you. The indictment, which is when a grand jury sits, is using that same standard, and it's just really a double tap on what the cop did. It's just a means for our system to ensure that the police didn't overstep, and we want this big group of jurors to say, we agree. That's all that a grand jury is. It sounds very legalistic, but that's all an indictment is. And they return an indictment. It's a piece of paper. It says, yeah, the cop did the right thing, and then the whole thing moves on. All right. So it's supposed to be probable cause. It says in the Idaho State Constitution, beyond a reasonable doubt. Apparently, nobody's ever raised this in Idaho. She found it. And, you know, more power to her. Again, she's doing her job. And she raised the issue. 
she lost at the uh, the first court level, the trial court level, right? The judge said, we have voluminous case law on this. You know, we've been do- using probable cause for indictments for years here in Idaho, Idaho. Forget it. She appealed. It went to the next level, the appellate division in Idaho. She lost there as well. But in that decision, the appellate court said, you can take it to the Idaho Supreme Court if you want. So if she were to do that, I don't know how fast that's going to happen. It's a high-profile case. That does matter. You know, the, 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 these people are aware of the fact that a lot of people are looking at this case. They may expedite it to get a decision fast. What really needs to happen is they got to fix the Idaho State Constitution. But that's going to take forever as legislators, you know, obviously uh, it takes a long time to get anything through the legislature. So I think that it probably will go to the Idaho State Supreme Court because it is a pretty black letter mistake. They're going to essentially say, no, that's not going to, hasn't been the standard. The lower courts were correct. Let's move on. But it does go to the idea of when are we going to actually see a trial? And it also matters because as you articulate, this is a death penalty case. Now, that matters here because they want to get everything right. Because in a death penalty case, the stakes are so high, they want to kind of cut off at the pass any appeals. Because as we all know, death penalty cases take forever. The defense will bring every possible appeal it can after the verdict to try to challenge the verdict, to get the verdict thrown out, to try to figure out a way to keep that client alive. And in fact... Koberger's team has added a death penalty specialist. So they're looking downrange post-conviction even while he's in jail, awaiting execution by firing squad. They're looking downrange to try to challenge issues. And then the judges that are involved here are well aware of that. They're professionals. And so that's why he's getting a lot of play. The court system is trying to give the defense every opportunity to be heard because they want to try to deal with these issues as legalistically and as, as, as strongly as possible so that the appeals don't have substance and so we can ultimately get to what the prosecution wants, which is a conviction in a death penalty case and ultimately a, a firing squad. And that's why a death penalty is, can be very important even as a tactic for the prosecution because it's the only, his life is the only thing he has to bargain with. And at some point here, if it really looks bad, and the defense says to him, look, we've lost every appeal, and I don't think it's going to work post-conviction when we come back to these issues because they've really lawyered this. You want a plea for your life? Get life in prison and give it all up. Are there any other victims? Where's the knife? Where are the bloody clothes? And the thing that everybody wants to know, especially a family, why? That's what everybody always wants to know. The families always want to know. I hesitate to use the term closure because I'm not sure you can ever get closure on something like this, but there is some measure of comfort or understanding that comes to a family member when at least they understand why this thing happened to their loved one. That's the dynamic that goes on here. But from what I see from the families, I got to say, I'm not so sure any of them are that interested in a plea deal. And by the way, the prosecutor will consult with the families before they take any plea deal. So I think you're looking at a trial. In my judgment, innocent till proven guilty, but in my opinion... He's likely going to be convicted, face the death penalty. There'll be some appeals, but at some point he's going to have to face the music. A good prosecutor, a sound prosecutor, 
confers with the families of the victims before obtaining or procuring that plea agreement. But unfortunately, it doesn't happen every time. Legally, I think it's such a fascinating question, this second one, because normally the judiciary pays a lot of deference to legislature Mm. and they never presume to know what's in the mind of legislators as they write certain laws that are ambiguous or vague and and the, the eventual source of the confusion that why people duke it out in court. But this is so interesting because that fact is abutted by the overwhelming case law in Idaho that essentially ignored that point, that fact that was codified in the Constitution. So a worse nightmare I would see would be the Supreme Court remanding down to the trial level and saying something like, until we hear from the legislature, we cannot make this decision. So I'm hoping that the case law provides at least the guide. Or, and this brings me to my question for you, which is, is there a possibility Is the state Supreme Court similar to the United States Supreme Court where they can grant cert or not? And if so here, is there a possibility that if the defense appeals the appellate level denial on their part, that the Supreme Court could decline to hear the case? Yes. So um, just to be clear, cert is short for certiorari, which just means that they're saying, yes, we'll hear it. Fancy, you know, lawyers love Latin terms, makes us feel... <laughs> we love know, abbreviating them too, clearly. They, they do. Oh, yes, because we use them so often. But yes, you're, you're exactly right. And um, Idaho court, the Idaho Supreme Court could, in fact, say, get lost. This thing has been adjudicated. The case laws from here to the moon. Um, this is the standard we've been operating under all of this time. Uh, They should probably change the Constitution, but in the interim, go to trial. And I think likely that's where it's going to go. That's that's how it's gone so far. They may entertain it because it's a death penalty case. They may entertain it to the Supreme Court, but even if the Supreme Court does grant cert, I really would be shocked if they found any differently here than apparently has been. I don't know what the case law is regarding this issue at the Supreme Court level, if it's ever gone that far. But... I'd be very, very surprised if that ends up being an impediment. And what I am basing that on is the language in the decisions that have come so far from the trial level and the first appellate level. Um, The judges don't really seem that interested in entertaining it. And just to be clear as well for listeners, the, the worst case scenario, let's say, as we armchair this, innocent until proven guilty, which is that if the Supreme Court says, nope, everyone from now on actually to be indicted does require that probable cause, well, then what would happen is that this would be dismissed uh, without prejudice, and then law enforcement would build their case to a reasonable doubt standard, and they would rearrest him. So eventually, we, we hope justice would be secured. It just would look a little different, and it would take a lot longer. That's, that's, that's right. Yeah. They'd have to fix it. It would be a big administrative boondoggle, but they ain't letting this guy go. Paul Morrow, thank you as always. Uh, So grateful to you. Your insight really is unparalleled. It's always fun. Thank you. To hear more stories like this, you can listen to our past episodes on the Fox True Crime Podcast. Go to foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts to listen and subscribe. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts and Amazon Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com.
Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.